We are going to begin here tonight, as I said, we're going to talk about the uh, mark of the beast. And we're going to kind of focus on this. We're in Revelation, obviously. We read about it a little bit here last, well, the week before last. But I want to kind of take a pause button and look at this because it is such an important thing. And I think such an important, important uh, or misunderstood part of Scripture. Um, in Revelation 13, 16, what we looked at here before, it said, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This is a mark that there has been speculation throughout centuries what this mark is supposed to be. And I'm going to, I know that I've kind of mentioned some of these things in the past, but we really have to ask ourselves, is this just a physical mark or could it also be? Uh, a spiritual mark as well. And I think it's going to be both in, an, in one hand. On the other hand, I think for many, many centuries, for many people, it has been nothing but a spiritual mark. But nonetheless, everybody, everybody who's ever lived has a mark of the beast moment. A mark of the beast decision to make. And I think you'll understand that more if that's new to you. But... <clears throat> The mark of the beast has drawn many into eschatology, to the book of Revelation, you know, trying to figure out what it is and that kind of thing, from social security numbers to UPC numbers to the recent vaccine. Could that be the mark of the beast type of things that are out there? I mean, you name it. The question, though, that I want to look at is it says to receive a mark on their right hand. Why, Why the right hand? Why not the left hand? Why not hands? Either one. But it's very specific about it being on the right hand. And keep in mind, this isn't God saying this is where it goes. This is the devil. This is the dragon. This is the Antichrist saying this is where it goes. So, the right hand in Scripture is a fascinating study if you just do a search. Just look at all the verses that talk about right hand in Scripture. And you're going to see that it is, in a sense, an object of your affection. The ancients actually believed your heart was found in the palm of your right hand. Not literally, they, they knew what bodies looked like, but they saw that your emotions, your heart, it was in your right hand. And therefore, to be held in the right hand of God, which Scripture talks about many times, was basically to be held close to God's heart. And in a sense, that is found in Scripture. Let me show you here first Mark or Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. It says, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So, Notice, again, he doesn't say your left hand or your right hand or give you an option of hands. He says your right hand. That's because a Jewish person, when you talked about their right hand, already had a mindset that was there. They knew what this was saying, that this has something to do with a choice. A choice that is set before you, a choice to sin or a choice to reject that sin, reject evil. And so <coughs> this is an intentional wording that we have here. 
and, as I said, consistent with Jewish thought, as you're going to see as we continue. Psalm 144, verse 11 says, Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. It's in a negative context here. This shows men who are willfully choosing to go against God, willfully choosing to sin. And so, again, a first century Jew, when they saw this right hand, they knew this is a, this is a, a choice. This is an allegiance that is being talked about with your right hand. Now, it's interesting, when we go to court today, as I, you know, what do you say? You raise your right hand as a sign of an oath of allegiance and honesty, truth. <coughs> so, it's a symbol of a good choice. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. God is at your right hand, or at David's right hand here. Why? He's basically in some sense saying, I have chosen God. Now, I don't want to get into the whole theology of, you know, can you choose God or not? No, you cannot choose God without him drawing, right? No one comes to the Father unless he goes through the Son and vice versa. You can't go to, the, go to Jesus without the Father drawing him. It says both in Scripture. I understand that. But with that said, we all have a choice now to follow God or not to follow God. God is not a puppet master that makes us choose. We were talking about this in post-Bible study last week about being persuaded. How many verses talk about persuasion? If God just makes you go to heaven and he makes you go to hell, there's no persuasion being needed. But he woos us with his love. He woos us with his word. He woos us with his son. And there's a choice to be made. Jesus sits at the right hand of God because, well, God chose him to redeem the world, to judge the world as well. It is a place of honor. It is a place of decision and a place of judgment. Matthew 25:33 says, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Even there, we're seeing a distinction between those on the right and the left. The evil versus the godly. Godly and ungodly. Matthew 6, 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, Clearly, there's some figurative language that is here, but it does show what's in the mind, and therefore, throughout the Bible, we see that it is, again, coming back to a choice, whether to be good or evil. Okay? When you're doing a charitable deed, when you're serving the Lord from the heart, there are people who serve the Lord out of evil intent. I shouldn't say serve the Lord. Serve others do good deeds, out of evil intent, selfish gain. Um, you know, something, Mark, that I have gotten so much mileage out of is we were talking, they kind of, in a post-Bible study, were kind of giving their testimony, Mark and Julia, and one of the phrases he said that was just, just so powerful to me was that he used to always look at people as a resource. And... I think that that is such a common thing. I've grown up in a world seeing that, especially with businesses, 
Christian businesses too. I mean, it's always about doing something. Well, you know, I got to do that because they do this for me, or, you know, I want to make sure that they continue to look well upon me or whatever the case might be. And it's so easy to look at people as resources, especially, I think it's very convicting to me in ministry because in ministry, I have to rely on so many people. And so there is an aspect, we are to be resources. But in our heart, we should not look at them as a resource. And anyway, if you know Mark, you know now, I mean, he is one of probably five people that I can name that serve beyond. I marvel at it. And you can just see what God has done showing him. There's a guy who does not let his left hand know what his right hand is doing. And this is the kind of thing that this is what, what it's talking about. When we serve, we shouldn't be looking for something out to get out of it. We shouldn't be looking for, to be looked upon because of it. We should be doing it because we have eyes for the Lord and the Lord only. And that's a choice that we make. I could go on and on and just make a whole sermon just on that, but um, we need to switch gears a little bit. I just wanted to show you a few of many. I could keep going and going and going talking about verses that deal with the right hand. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Many times throughout Scripture, many verses you're going to see that God's right hand, you could substitute the word Jesus in place of that. And it seems to just, it'll fit. And so... Ezekiel 46.10 is another verse that I think is very fascinating. It's a foundational verse for not only this, but all of creation. It says this, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. You can go look at the context of it more, but bottom line is it it, it says this. You want to know what the end times are going to look like? You can look from the beginning and it's going to model it. It's going to mimic it. I have said over and over how Satan keeps trying to mimic literally everything that God does. Whether it be the resurrection of the dead. We saw this you know, beast uh, that looks like if he had been slain, but miraculously, this wound, he, he's healed. He comes back. We see the Trinity. The devil has a Trinity in chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation. Well, likewise... God has put a mark on us. And the devil wants to mark his own as well. And that is what's going on here. That is why the devil has chosen to make sure that it is on your forehead or your right hand. Because I am God, Satan says. I am the one that is to receive the glory. And all these things that God is supposed to have, I want it. He said, I will set my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the utmost or the most high. This is Satan constantly trying. Everything God does, he wants it. Everything God has, he wants. God has children, he wants you. He wants to destroy you. So, This is one reason why Genesis is important, not just in Revelation. I mean, I could go on and on, but we've talked about the days of creation, how that seems to model even end times events. But 
let's look at it in reference to specifically this mark of the beast and what we've been seeing in Revelation. In Genesis 3.1 it says, Now the serpent was more crafty or cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? This word serpent is a, an interesting Hebrew word. It is nahash. Now nahash, even to this very day, the Hebrew word for sorcery is nahash. And we have something that's called the law of first mention, and that is the first time a word is used in Scripture, it helps to define how it's supposed to be used from there on out. And so this is the first time this word here, nahash, is used in the Bible. And it is to introduce the devil, the serpent, to us. Now, the devil has many different names, the dragon, you know, deceiver, whatnot. But here, nahash is chosen. Sorcery, some type of witchcraft. And I think that is significant because the meaning of this word, when you look at the roots and everything, it means to allure or to enchant through deception. And that is what the devil does. That is how he is a deceiver. He allures you with, you know, tempting the flesh. He allures you with lies, like he did here with Eve. Did God, did God really say that? Oh, are you sure? Planting seeds of doubt in their mind about the truth of what God's word says. I mean, I'm sure every one of us have had moments of doubt where we question, can I really be saved? Can, does God really love me? Is, is this, all of this really true? That's the devil. That's that alluring, deceptive, uh, enchanting spell of the devil. Well, <coughs> this word for serpent is the exact same word as witchcraft or sorcery. And that's how he is defined here. So what's fascinating is when we look in Revelation 12, 9 here, the choosing of the title for the devil is significant. There would not have been a Jew alive that would not have had their minds go back to Genesis 3 when they read Revelation 12 here. It says, so the great dragon, we know that Satan, we identified him earlier, was cast out. But then it says, that serpent of old. Again, that nahash. This is Greek here, but it, the equivalent is that sorcery, that, that sorcerer. And so their minds would have gone back to Genesis 3 here. This, this sorcerer called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Well, he was cast to the earth. So, you know, John here in Revelation could have described him as, you know, that ancient liar, the father of lies, the murderer, what, you know, all kinds of things. But instead, he takes the reader back to the garden. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. And he's taking you back and saying there's a connection between Genesis and revelation here. Now, did a little bit further study because there was a guy named Nahash, the exact same word that's called the Ammonite in Scripture as well. 
If you recall, this is the one who said in 1 Samuel 11, 2, On this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. This is the guy that was, I think it was the Gideonites, or Gibeonites, now I'm confused which one. But this Ammonite's coming, going to attack Israel. Saul hears about it when Saul is first becomes king. And Saul, well, who is it? Jabesh it was Jabesh Gilead. Yep, thank you. Jabesh Gilead. And so what happens is Saul goes and rescues them. Now this story, we'll see years and years later, Saul is going to be killed. And he is hung on the walls of the city of Beth Shean one of the places that we'll go to in Israel. He is hung on the walls outside of that city. And the men of Jabesh Gilead come, take his body down and bury it. And you go, well, why? Why did they do that? Saul was really being evil, all these things. Well, because Saul rescued them. And they were going to give honor to him because he had rescued them. Years earlier, when this Nahash or Nahash, had come to threaten their lives. Later on, in that same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 11, just about four verses later, it says, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. After they had this great victory, they go to Gilgal. And Gilgal becomes known then as a place of change. Uh, Gilgal is where the circumcision takes place. It means to roll away. And they said, because God has rolled away the approach of Egypt from us. My whole point in bringing some of these things up is that Gilgal is a place of memorial, a place of change. We see when the Israelites crossed into the promised land, they took 12 stones out of the Jordan and set them up at Gilgal as a memorial of God's deliverance. And here we've got this guy named Nahash, an Ammonite who wants to go after God's people, who wants to gouge out their right eye, who wants to do away, but God brings a deliverer and rescues them. And they say, now let's go up to Gilgal, a place of memorial. Let's, let's remember this. <coughs> so it's also the place that Saul prematurely sacrificed to the Lord, which is why he lost the kingdom because of his disobedience as well. But anyway, just some interesting connections that are there. <coughs> but some other things here in Genesis 3.1, besides him being called a serpent, notice that he was more crafty or cunning than any beast of the field. That sets up a hierarchy between the devil and all the other beasts. The devil was better, set up higher <coughs> than everyone else. <coughs> Sorry. Revelation 13.4 says, So they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. You can see this hierarchy even in Revelation as we've been studying it. The dragon gives the power and authority to the Antichrist, who then gives authority to the false prophet. Likewise, in the garden, this serpent has the more authority. He's set up higher in position than all the rest. And then he says, you know, has God indeed said, like I mentioned before, it's that whole idea of planting seeds of doubt, going after 
God's people. And that's what we see in Revelation is going to happen. This beast is going to have all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, wonders, lies to get you to doubt the truth of God's word. Probably lies to get you to follow your experiences, your emotions, your desires over the truth of the word of God. Verse 2 in Genesis continues and says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He goes from planting seeds of doubt to calling God a liar. Well, there's a few things that I find fascinating in here as well. This whole story I've asked the question before, why did God place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst, in the middle of the garden? Of all places, put it off in a corner someplace. And the answer in Genesis is the same answer of why he's going to allow this Antichrist to have a mark. He wants you to have a choice. He wants you to have a choice. He doesn't want robots he doesn't want accidents. He wants intentional, purposeful followers who love him. And I'm not going to get into the whole Genesis aspect of that here, but it's purposely told here in Genesis at the beginning that it's in the middle of the garden. Make known the end from the beginning. The devil went after the first law that God gave, a food law. Do not eat. He went after a food law, and that's interesting. Do not touch or else you will die. The interesting thing is, is he said, no, you're not going to die. What are the commandments of God? What does it say in Deuteronomy? What is one of the main reasons God gave the commandments? So that you might fear me. It says, to know God, to fear God, to love God. That's why he gave them the commandments. So now he says, no, you don't need to be afraid of God. He can't hurt you. He just knows that you can be like him. The very thing that Satan wanted to be. But he removes the fear of God by going after the commandment of God. What the devil is doing, the devil knows from the beginning what he wants is to get you to disobey God. That's the, from the beginning. Now what I find fascinating is when we go to Isaiah 66, we've seen this verse in other contexts before, but in Isaiah 66, you go read, this is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, a future event, a future time, sometime that we have not experienced yet. And here's what it says. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. The Lord's going to come, and he is going to, as we saw in earlier in Revelation, we'll see further, the sword of truth coming out of his mouth. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens. Notice gardens are mentioned. After an idol in the midst there's an idol in the midst of a garden. Just like we saw in Genesis, 
there was an idol, a tree of knowledge of good and evil that was set up in the midst of the garden. And notice it says, they're going to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse. What are these people who are going to purify and sanctify themselves going through this religious ritual, going into the midst of a garden to an idol, what are they going to do? Break a food law. They're the ones that eat unclean food, pork, rats. It says they shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The same kind of concept here in Isaiah 66, talking about end times that we see in Genesis. The consequence is to be consumed or destroyed or die. What was the consequence of disobedience in Genesis? You will die. And the devil says, no, you won't. <coughs> so the consequence of disobedience for Adam and Eve is the same for us. Death apart from Jesus. So, anyway, we're going to move back into Deuteronomy 6.4 and look at these commandments a little bit. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these commands that I, which I, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. This is a, a very famous scripture verse among Jews. It, it's called the Shema. Shema is basically listen, hear. Shema Israel. Listen, Israel. Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Ahad. The Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so you've probably heard, you can just Google Shema, and you'll see all kinds of renditions of this song. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. This is kind of like the, I mean, the basic foundational confessional verse of a Jew. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay? Anyway... The point that I want you to see, though, is that he says these commands, which are these words that I command you today. You know, that word command gives us this idea of I'm forced to do it. I'm a slave and, oh, what a bummer. I've got to do this. My mom and dad are making me do this, right? But notice that the command is to be in your heart. That takes something that seems very negative and it makes it something very positive, that, in essence, is the difference between legalism and Christianity. That we take the Word of God, the very covenant, the new covenant, this is the covenant I will make with uh, the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem at that time. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. God wanted to put his law in our hearts. Take it from a, oh, I have to, a burden, a, condemn, a condemning thing, to a blessing and a joy because it's in your heart. The difference between, say, go clean your room. I'm tired of this mess. 
to, Selah, thank you for cleaning your room and keeping it clean all the time. Okay, the result is the same. The room gets cleaned. One, out of, you know, uh, prodding and prying and arguing and stubbornness, and another out of the heart. That's the difference. Same results, but two different ways of getting there. And so obedience in the proper understanding is actually a sign of our love, not a sign of being a slave or, you know, forced to do something. Next slide shows us this in the New Testament as well. It's, it's the same in the Old or the New. 1 John 5, 2, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. I love that verse. Love is what drives us. It's the heart of God that drives us. John shows Jesus saying, if you love me, you will do what I say. And somehow we've lost that. The devil has been able to twist this idea of obedience and turn it into a command. A command of slavery. Deuteronomy continues in verse 7. It says, you shall teach these words diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, <coughs> when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Isn't that interesting? Where are the commands supposed to be? On your right hand and on your forehead. Your forehead or your right hand? The very same place the mark of the beast is supposed to be placed. But here, it says that you shall bind these words, these commands of God. These things that are supposed to be in your heart, them as a sign on your hand. It's a symbol. Frontlets between your eyes. Now we know that the Jews have taken this and they have taken it to the physical, literal extent of making the phylacteries on their heads. They even put this verse in the phylactery, as well as a couple of others, in the phylactery on their foreheads. Then they bind their hands. They take that leather strap and they wrap it around and around and around and around all the way up their arm because of this verse. Making it a command, not a heart. Missing the point completely. But the point being is your eyes and your hand or your forehead and hand are a picture of your choices. A choice to obey God or a choice to live in disobedience. And like I said, the church I think has lost this. Because we've made, oh no, 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 oh no, no, we're free in Christ. You don't need to do anything. There's truth in that. But I think that it's been blurred to the point of all you got to do is say your prayers at night, go live like hell, and you'll get heaven because you're free in Christ. Let me tell you, that's a mark of the beast moment right there. 
That's what Revelation is going to say here, as I think you'll see very clearly. Remember at the Passover, I've talked about this many times, the star of the show of the Passover is what? The Lamb, Jesus, right? He's the star of the show. And here we see Jesus, the star of the show, coming when they're in Egypt. They are rescued and saved from Egypt, from death, because the blood of the Lamb is put over the doorpost of the home. They have been chosen by God, redeemed by God, rescued by God, delivered by God. They go out into the wilderness, and now come the commandments of God. Not before. You would expect it the way the church almost teaches it in some cases on the other side would be uh, the Ten Commandments should have come first and then Jesus should have come and redeemed them because they were so good and kept the commandments so well. Right? Quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does the Bible say why God led them out, why he redeemed them? He says, and this is the covenant I will make with the forefathers, right? It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. By the way, this is before the Ten Commandments were given. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. This is the covenant I'll make. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their hands. God says, because I love you, because I redeemed you, because you weren't worthy of any of it, I'm going to take and I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you a choice. And then you know what I'm going to do? Later, I'm going to put those commands on your heart so that you have a desire to love me, to worship, and to follow, to obey me. And I'm going to take all the condemnation of it away. But I want you to see how much I love you. We love... Because he first loved us. So, just like here, it's the same with us. After Passover, after Jesus come the commandments. The benefits of the commandments. Before, the commandments lead you to Christ. It shows you how awful you are. It shows you your need for a Savior. But when you become a Savior, the law does not go away. The condemnation of the law goes away, and now that law, you become a new creation. That law becomes a part of who you are, and it becomes a joy. Let me show you another connection here to the Passover. In Exodus 13, 7, it says, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No un, or, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, Why? Why, are, why do we do this? Why do we eat bread for these, you know, unleavened bread for all these seven days? <coughs> it says, tell your son in that day, this is done because. This is why we obey this command. Because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Why do you keep the commandments of God? Because of what Jesus did for me when he brought me up out of the depth and the mire of my own sin and flesh and yuck, evil inside of me. That is why I obey. Same pattern, the same connection. 
Verse 9 goes, It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Why is the, the law of God supposed to be on your mouth? Because God brought you up out of Egypt. That's why. Not so that you can get out of Egypt. Not so that you can even get to the promised land. But simply because of what God has done. And I love that. But catch this. And go ahead. So he set us free so we should follow his commands. So Jesus came to set us free. We should follow his commands. Exactly. Yep. That's what it means to be free in Christ. (laughs) So what I want you to see here, though, is that this is a command. Keep in mind, we haven't even gotten to the Ten Commandments yet. But he's saying, you're to keep Passover. You're to keep these laws, and another food law here, interestingly. And it says you're to keep this as a memorial, as a sign, but... Don't forget that because of this sign, the law of the Lord is to come out your mouth. Those two things go hand in hand. This is what I was talking about in my poor analogy of peanut butter and jelly earlier. Okay? Let me show you that now in Revelation. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Israel's offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, you can go ahead and keep, you know, Passover like Exodus said. Don't eat bread with leaven in it for the seven days. And that's going to be a reminder for you on your hand and on your forehead. But if it stopped there, you only got a peanut butter sandwich. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, as it said here, the law may be in your mouth. We are to have a testimony that goes along with your works. Faith without works is dead. Right? So... You can easily see that the scriptures have defined very clearly that there is a mark of God, a sign on your hand and your forehead. And what is it? The commandments of God. It's kind of interesting that that sign tells you who you stand for, who you fight for, who you believe in. That's what a sign does. The mark of the beast, you can't buy, you can't sell without some sign to show you who you who your allegiance is to. And so it is a visible sign. Not necessarily a tattoo on my hand, but who I am. What does Jesus say? How do you know? You will recognize them by their fruit. Not by a mark, a physical mark, but by a spirituality. By their fruit, you will know them. And this is what this is talking about. It does. What you do, how you lead your life, is a mark 
for the world to see. And it identifies you, at least it better. If you're walking around in this world and you're a farmer and nobody comes to your funeral because you didn't touch anybody's lives, maybe that should make people question and say, what am I doing with my life? Have I been marked? So, you want to know what the mark of the beast is then? Well, you know the mark of God first. Because if you go against the mark of God, then I think you've got already the mark of the beast. It's that simple. Going against God's mark is taking Satan's mark. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here bear those who keep the commandments of God and faith of Jesus Christ. There's that peanut butter and jelly again. Both. Keeping the commandments and faith. You keep the commandments without faith? You're sorry. Okay, go ahead and have faith and have no deeds. Sorry, James says faith without works is dead. You need peanut butter and jelly for it to be a good sandwich. That's the way it is. So, <coughs> um, I know this is jumping ahead here to chapter 14 that we haven't gotten to yet. But note how that this is contrasted here. In verse 11, those who have the mark of the beast. Then in verse 12, those who keep the commands of God. It's an intentional contrast. You're either keeping the commands of God or you got the mark. It's one or the other. So the image as well, note that image. Just like what we saw in Isaiah 66. They're going, they're disobeying God, but there's an idol that's set up. Isaiah 66 said you go into the midst of the garden to an idol and then you disobey God. Same thing. And then again, this twofold aspect of faith, faith and works. Revelation 20, jumping even further ahead, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. A testimony and a word. God's word. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image. These people who are following God don't have a mark of the beast. And they had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Instead, they received the mark of God on their foreheads and in their hands, in their heart and in their allegiance. So hopefully you're seeing how not worshiping and not taking the mark are connected here. Disobedience to God is worship of the devil. That's just what it is, light or dark. You take obedience out of the equation of Christianity, who are you worshiping? The beast, the devil. Those who obey Jesus are those who don't have the mark of the beast. And so, this is why I say, Every generation has a choice to take a mark. 
every single one. Otherwise, I just, I don't want to, you know, dissect God too much, but it seems very unfair. Why this last generation only can have this one little thing of an, oops, you're going to hell, right? That all these centuries, nobody really had to face that kind of choice. Doesn't that seem unfair to you? Well, I think it's because just like in the Garden of Eden, just like on Mount Ebal, just like everywhere throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New, Joshua, choose this day whom you will follow. I set before thee blessings and curses, life and death. I set before you a tree of life, a tree of knowledge and good and evil. I set before you obedience to God, a mark of the beast. Choose this day whom you will follow. In Revelation, we know that there is the Antichrist. But John tells us that there are many Antichrists. That's because I think that throughout every century, I think throughout every lifetime, throughout every generation, Satan has had somebody ready who could be. There has always been evil in this world. Always. It doesn't matter because God is always there too and light can overcome the darkness. But the point being is that there have been many antichrists, even at the time here of Christ. And these antichrists are spreading lies, delusions, sorcery to delude you, to get you to believe anything but the word of God. And you choose to make that choice, you've taken a mark. A mark against God. So, <coughs> we know Revelation tells us <coughs> that everyone who takes the mark goes to the lake of fire. But so does everyone who has disobeyed in the past. Right? Revelation, you take the mark, you go to hell. No ifs, ands, or buts. I got news for you. You chose to disobey God in this lifetime, you're going to hell. You have taken the mark. Now again, in context of everything that I've been saying tonight, works doesn't get you there. What I'm talking about is faith and works. The peanut butter and the jelly sandwich have to go together. I'm not saying that if you are good, just obey God, that that gets you to heaven. You can, obe you can be as good as you can obeying God. You're still going to hell if you don't have faith. Okay, So don't take that out of that context. But anyway, Adolf Hitler, he had a mark moment. He chose his side, as many other evil people throughout. Back in Daniel 7, we saw four beasts. We've kind of been talking about them. And then in chapter 8, all of the attention goes to the third beast of Greece, that goat that never touched the ground as it went across the earth. And we talked about that last week, how Antiochus exalted himself and went after the saints, went after the temple of God, the house of worship. And I bring that up again tonight because I think that even this generation has seen a mark of the beast moment, regardless of whether we are in end times or not. You know, 
just two years ago already, maybe not even all of that, we saw people telling us that you could not worship. You could not sing to, to praise God. There were people saying maybe th this could be it. I stored it in the back of my mind wondering where is this going. But you see, we had a choice. Now, I am not saying that those people who chose, okay, I'm scared, I'm scared of this virus, so I'm not going to go to church and I'm not going to worship God, and therefore they're going to hell. Not saying that. But what I'm saying is that there is an attitude of the heart that we need to be prepared for at all times and in every situation throughout all of our lives. That if somebody tells you, you cannot worship God, you disobey. And you worship God. You see, that's a mark of the beast moment. There were many things like that. You couldn't gather. You guys were kicked out of a park. Uh, there was even talk of canceling Christmas, right? To, to worship Jesus. That we might have to cancel Christmas this year. Really? You know, um, there was talk about maybe if you don't have this vaccine, you won't be able to buy, go into a store. Come into, you couldn't go into the store without wearing a mask in some cases. Boy, doesn't that all sound very familiar to what Revelation talks about for the Antichrist? that we had a Antichrist attitude going on in America and very few people could even see through it? Again, <laughs> there were so many connections. How about the HR Bill 6666 for contact tracing? Right? Boy, what a strange number to attach to that. That's exactly what Nazi Germany did. They used society to turn society and their own brothers, their own fathers, their own children were being turned in. And so these are just worldly physical examples of spiritual thinking that we need to be trained in and have. And so I'm going to kind of close out with just a couple of other verses here in Psalms. But next week, I want to show you, and I'm going to take you through some history. And I'm going to take you all the way back to Caesar's and what Josephus said, some of the Roman emperors. And you're going to see that there were people who had Mark of the Beast moments in almost a very literal sense of what Revelation speaks of. That if they did not give allegiance and bow down before these statues of the emperor that called themselves gods, they were literally branded and marked so that they could not go and participate in society. You couldn't go to the market and buy food. They marked them so that everybody could see they do not stand in allegiance to the emperor, to the throne. And we're going to look at that history next week. But for tonight, I just want to focus on the idea of what is your Mark of the Beast moment? Do you have one? Have you had one? Is there one that you could easily maybe be tempted to take? Now again, 
I'm not saying one decision, you, you, you decide, you disobeyed God, here you're going to hell. I've got to say this over and over. I know you guys get sick of me saying it, but I, I can't take the risk of somebody thinking that I am teaching work salvation here. I'm not saying, I mean, by the grace of God, I screw up every day and I have that forgiveness because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. I have assurance but I also know what's in my heart. Paul himself said, the good that I want to do, I do not do, and that which I hate, I keep on doing. The key being the good that I want to do. Paul had it in his heart to do good. He failed, and he says, who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the mark of God right there. Thanks be to God. I want to do good. I have it in my heart to do what is right. Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want the joy of your Christianity? I've mentioned it before, but in Jesus' prayer in John 15, when he's praying for the disciples, he says, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. And then he goes on and he says, I have told you this, that your joy may be complete. You see, you need to remain in God. You need to remain in the right hand of God. Allegiance to him. Jesus, the right hand of God. And you will find joy in him. Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from the, His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. I think that's Jesus that's being talked about there. That is why Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 48, 10, According to Your name, O God, so is Your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. It's like that song we sang. Yet not I, but Christ in me. You see, it is God's right hand, His righteousness, that we rely on. Not I, but Christ in me. Christ who is in my heart. Christ who is in my mind. I have the mark of God. And I just, I, I pray that None of us will even consider the mark of the beast in walking in disobedience to God's word, to his law, from the heart. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just your righteousness, for your right hand, your strength, your power, your forgiveness, your mark, the sign that you have put on our hearts and in our minds Lord, I just pray that we would lift them up high, that we would continue to have that fear of God before our eyes, that we might know you, love you, and just testify about you. Let your word just be the desire of our hearts and souls, that we would seek to obey you, seek ways that we can bring glory to you, seek ways to understand your word and that you would reveal to us those things that are in our lives that 
our mark of the beast moments, things that go against your word, things that <coughs> distract us from you, getting caught up in this world. Lord, we just pray that uh, you would be our choice through the power and love of the Holy Spirit that you have placed in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.